Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. I recently read a, a news article uh, online that said uh, Melbourne was one of the most locked down cities in the world, if not the most locked down cities in the world. And obviously it went on to say the results of having a lockdown was the fact that you know, there was a lot of uh, effects, negative effects that it had on, had on the general population. It had uh, effects like anxiety and depression and, and suicide rates going up and other forms of mental illness. And no doubt the general population has had a negative impact because of the lockdowns. But more so, uh, something closer to home in regards to church, this has definitely had a negative impact on the church. In fact, our inability as a, as a church to gather together as a body has had a, has a big impact on how we live as Christians. You see, as a result of this, some of, been, some of us have been struggling. Some of us have been struggling with spiritual apathy. There are others that have been struggling with indifference towards God and just a, a weariness of not wanting to come into God's presence. You know, and some of us, uh, because of the struggles that we've had, uh, we've even stopped living like Christians ought to live, where we are not doing the one another things. There's no opportunities for that. And even in that, we fail when we have those opportunities. And we've become so inward focused that we've forgotten to read the Word of God and to meditate on Scripture. We've forgotten to pray. We've forgotten to be an encouragement to those around us. And instead, what have we done? We've, uh, we've uh, looked into ourselves and spent time with ourselves and loved ourselves more, binging on TV shows and any other form of entertainment that will occupy our time. We have focused so much and so selfishly looked at ourselves that obviously the impact that it has had is on the wider body. You see, instead of living like Christians and doing the one anothering, we have sinned often by re- not, not living together as God calls us to live. So the question is, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this sort of discouragement that comes from uh, this form of a trial? How do we deal with the weariness that comes as a result of how we live life in this way? James offers us some truths that will help us in uh, persevering through this time of difficulty and this time of trial. In the past, I have been working my way through the book of James, and, and now we come to the conclusion of this letter. And so for today's passage, I'll be looking at James chapter 5, verses 13 through to 20, and drawing out some principles that will help us to think about how do we actually uh, work our way through suffering and trials and difficulties in life. I'm just going to read that, James 5, verse 13 to 20. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. Praise. Verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. 
Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I think that it is critical that we understand the the wider context of the book of James if we were to interpret this passage correctly. So James starts off this letter in chapter 1, verse 1, by making it clear that his recipients are Jewish Christians. We see that in chapter 1, verse 1. And we know from church history that there was a lot of persecution, and a lot of these Jewish Christians had fled the persecution, and they were dispersed throughout uh, what is the world at that point of time. And it is potentially possible that James actually was a pastor to some of these uh, Christians because he was one of the prominent leaders of the church at Jerusalem. And so it is possible that he actually personally knew some of that, some of these people. And so in this context of suffering and these trials, James says, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. James clearly is, a, is encouraging them to be joyful during persecution. Now, the Greek word for uh, trials here, periasmus, is not just translated as suffering because of persecution, but it's also tr- uh, translated as temptation or a trial or an opportunity where there is an opportunity to sin. And so the application suddenly, or what James is talking about here, goes beyond just this suffering, but also how we live. He explains that the reason for them to be joyful uh, during suffering is so that they can be steadfast during trials. So he says, like, the reason why you have trials is ultimately for you to be joyful. But why do you need to be joyful? Because you need to be steadfast. And what happens when you become steadfast? As he says in verse one, one, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, it will cause them to be mature and complete. So that's the end goal of trials and suffering in our lives. And so it is with that maturity in mind that James is encouraging them to, to be joyful in all trials over there when they face trials of various kinds. Now, James does not end here alone, and he actually goes on to give them uh, the secret in dealing with trials. He says in James chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives a generosity to all. Meaning that if anyone lacks wisdom to deal with these trials, then he is to go to God. He is to ask God for wisdom. And God will give him the wisdom that he needs. Now the reality, however, is that these Jewish Christians who are facing persecution, who are facing temptation and trials, were not responding in that way. They were not applying godly wisdom. What did they do? They were applying the wisdom of the world. In, in James chapter 4, verse 4, he accuses them of being friends with the world and enemies with God. So they were facing trials, they were facing temptations, and instead of using godly wisdom to remain steadfast and grow and mature, they applied worldly wisdom. What happens when you apply worldly wisdom? You start to think like the world, you start to act like the world, you start to live like the world. And that's exactly what these Christians were doing. You see in chapters 1 through to 5, when he deals with various issues, issues, you see there were sins of hypocrisy and pride. There were sins of partiality and injustice. There were issues of sin in terms of the tongue. There was jealousy, evil practices, quarrels, fights. There was lawlessness, greed, even murder among them. And this is why James confronts their form of Christianity and says, so also in James chapter 2 verse 17, he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You see, the problem plaguing these Christians is that the faith that they claim to have 
is not demonstrated in the way that they live. So they're saying that I believe and I have faith and all these things, but the way that they live, as we've seen from chapter 1 through to 5, does not demonstrate that they actually have that faith. And so it is in dealing with this worldly wisdom that is influencing the way of life that James is actually writing this letter. And so when we arrive at chapter 5, which is where we're at now, James reaches the end of the letter and he encourages them to apply godly wisdom. Don't live like the world. Don't apply the wisdom of the world. Apply godly wisdom. How does he do that? In verse 7, he encourages them to be patient, knowing that the Lord will return. In verse 11, we see James encouraging them to apply godly wisdom by being steadfast. In verse 12, we see him encouraging them to apply godly wisdom by being truthful and honest. We see him encouraging them finally, as we will look today, to apply godly wisdom by praying in faith for the restoration of one another. But what we'll also see today is he ends this letter with a warning. With his encouragement also comes warning. He says, if they do continue down this path of worldly wisdom and they don't turn for their ways and instead turn to godly wisdom and apply godly wisdom, what happens if they continue down this path is that their path is the path of ruin and distraction. So for today's message, I've titled it as Prayer for Restoration and want to draw three points that teaches us about prayer and how we are to deal with worldliness and sin among us and instead strive towards godliness within the body. Three points I'd like to raise today is first, uh, praying as an individual. Secondly, praying and accountability as a church and the effect of prayer and accountability against worldliness. So before we get into our main points, let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer and then we'll begin the sermon. So let's pray together. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you, Lord, for this uh, day that we can come worship you together in this way. Even as we come to your word, Father, we, we confess, Lord, that what James is writing about here is uh, real in our lives right now. And some of us are in that very same boat that James is, uh, to the, in the congregation that James is addressing to, Lord. And Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand these truths as we look at this text, uh, that uh, we would be able to understand, to comprehend, and to respond to you rightly, Lord. Lord, to that end, Lord, we also want to pray, Lord, for uh, just uh, the, the, the wider Christian community that is around us, Lord. We want to pray, Lord, for the churches that are in our, uh, in our neighborhood, Lord, the church, churches, Lord, that are near, the churches that are within Victoria, the churches that are in, in, in New South Wales, in Australia, in the worldwide, Lord. And, and we, we pray, Lord, especially that you would give wisdom to the leadership in, the, in all these churches, Lord, that preach your gospel, Lord, to be able to know how it is, Lord, that even during this time of lockdown, time of pandemic, how they can encourage your people to keep coming back to God and to not uh, wallow in self-pity and self-absorbed uh, Christianity, but that they would uh, realize, Lord, that uh, living as Christians means that uh, we ultimately apply the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of this world, Lord. And so, Lord, we pray, Lord, for the churches around us, Lord. We pray, Lord, for our government, Lord. We pray, Lord, for uh, our premier, Lord, we pray uh, that you would give him wisdom in knowing, uh, Lord, how to uh, uh, make the choices that is best uh, for uh, the people of Victoria, Lord. 
Lord, we realize, Lord, that you're the God who places people in authority and in high places, Lord, and that you're sovereign over that, Lord. And so we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, even that uh, during this time, Lord, for even for Dan, Dan Andrews, Lord, that uh, there would be a means by which he would be able to hear the gospel. There would be a means by which uh, he would come to know uh, the true understanding of uh, what, who Jesus Christ is and not the form of Christianity that is falsely peddled, Lord, in the world around us, Lord. And we pray uh, for opportunities for him to hear the gospel, Lord, and for him to come to know you. We pray, Lord, for our Prime Minister, Lord, and we pray, Lord, for uh, wisdom for him as well to make the decisions that he needs to make, Lord, that is right and uh, for the benefit of uh, uh, this na our nation, Lord. And so we, we pray, Lord, that uh, you would, uh, uh, in your sovereignty, uh, give wisdom to our leaders who are in uh, those positions, Lord. So we come today, Lord, and we, uh, we pray, Lord, that even as you look at your word, that uh, again, as we pray, that you would encourage us, you would cause us to uh, understand, and that you would cause us to uh, apply what we learn today. These things you ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first point uh, with regards to prayer that uh, James is trying to encourage us with here is, is really praying as an individual. And he starts off in verse 13. So James 5.13. So he, he encourages them to pray in all circumstances. So as an individual, what he's saying is that no, we have to pray in all circumstances. And he, he does this by explaining two different scenarios. He starts off with a person who is suffering. Look at verse 13. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now the word used for suffering here is only used two other times uh, in, in the New Testament. And both of those times the word is used in relation to suffering for the sake of the gospel or suffering because of persecution. And now we know from the general context of this letter that this suffering is because of the uh, suffering that they faced because of persecution or because of their faith. But also we know from the immediate context that uh, the suffering perhaps they're facing is because of the rich oppressing the poor, uh, because of uh, whatever, the sin that was among their midst that uh, people were suffering because of that. And so in the suffering, James is encouraging them to pray. And the prayer that he's talking about here is not just a once-off prayer that somehow uh, you know, we, we ask God, but rather an ongoing, continuous prayer that is fervent. Now, the question is, why is he asking them to pray during this suffering? Why, why is, what is the connection between prayer and suffering? And this is because, as we saw earlier in James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, the end goal of suffering or trial, the end goal of suffering or trial is our maturity and being made complete in Christ. And if that end goal is to be achieved, then we have to remain steadfast during trials. And if we are to remain steadfast or, not, or stand fast or not moved by trials around us, what do we have to do? We have to seek wisdom from above. Again, in, in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously, generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Meaning that the wisdom required is what we have to pray for when we face trials. And hence, James' encouragement, James's encouragement for them to pray if they are suffering. You see, prayer during the time of suffering is critical to dealing with our suffering because if we are not depending on God in our prayers, then inevitably we will depend on the world to deal with our circumstances. As one uh, preacher says, the only way 
through it, or only way out of a trial is through it. And when we go through it, we can either borrow wisdom from the world or we can borrow wisdom from God. And the call is as individuals when we are suffering is to ask God for wisdom. Because if we follow the wisdom of the world, then that path that we follow is a path to destruction. Secondly, we see the individual who is cheerful in that same verse. He says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now, the word cheerful here is better translated as encouraged. For example, Paul uses the same word for cheerful in Acts 27 uh, when he's encouraging his shipmates who had lost hope of survival. And so James is saying, is, if anyone is encouraged or is anyone uh, cheerful or doing well in the Lord, the fact that these Christians were facing persecution, uh, circumstantially speaking, they had no reason to be cheerful. The only reason for them to be cheerful was because they had absolute confidence in God. You see, a cheerful person who is someone who, despite the persecution and suffering that is around him, is still cheerful because he has placed his confidence and his trust in God. We saw James encouraging them previously in this form of cheerfulness in chapter 1 verse 2, when he says to count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. You see, this joy is the confidence that we have in God because we see what God is doing and we see what the end result of God, what God intends through our trials. So what does a cheerful person have to do? He is to sing praise. Why is James asking them to sing praise? What's the connection between uh, someone who's cheerful and singing praise? Because singing praise really is the evidence of one's joyfulness. You know, we, in Ephesians 5, Paul addresses the church and says, the way that a spiritual Christian is to live is by singing hymns and spiritual songs to the Lord. He says in verse 18 of Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, he says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your, with your heart. You see, singing praise to the Lord is a form of prayer. It is a form of prayer in song as we are directing our praise to God. And James is saying here is that when a person is cheerful and encouraged, he is to direct his praise to God in song. I just want to encourage, uh, I want to pause and encourage you to think about how is it that you praise God um, through song? When was the last time that your heart was drawn to God in such delight and joy that it caused you to burst forth in singing songs that you know. You see, David did not write all of these psalms just because he had head knowledge. David is a man after God's own heart because he delighted in the Lord. And the psalms that he wrote was an outpouring of his delight and his communion with God. It came out of his heart because he really tasted and saw what the Lord, that the Lord was good. In Acts 16, we see Paul and Silas singing in prison when they were in chains. You see, they did not sing because they were somehow crazy in their head. They were singing because the strength and the assurance and the delight that came from the Lord surpassed the circumstance of imprisonment that they were in. They had absolute confidence in God. It speaks volumes of the relationship that one has with God. And so James here encourages the individual whose heart is cheerful. 
He encourages them to sing to God, sing praise. So both in the circumstance where someone is suffering and, both, and, the other circum, and also in the circumstance where someone is, through that suffering, being able to see God's goodness and have confidence in God, the call for both of them is to pray. Pray to the Lord for wisdom and pray a praise to God through song. Now, moving from the individual, James now turns and takes the application to, to the church. He's, changed the, he's moved from this application of prayer from personal life to life within the body. And he does that in verse 14 through 18. So he starts in verse 14 and he says, um, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray for him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So James gives two applications and this is the first application. He is asking them and encouraging them to pray within the context of the church by asking the sick person to call the elders and to come and pray over him. Now, the word sick here can be translated in a couple of ways. Firstly, the word sick is translated as physically ill. Now, in Matthew 11, this word for sick or asteneo is translated uh, as physically ill in the, or really critically ill in the case of Lazarus, who we know dies. But also, the other way the word asteneo or sick is translated is also referring to spiritual weakness. For example, in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, Paul uses the same word, asthenia, to describe weakness and weariness as a cost of following Christ. So then this begs the question, what does James mean by sick when he's talking about that here? What is he referring to when he says the word, uses the word sick? Now, in plain reading of our text, our attention is drawn to words like sick, a prayer of faith, raising up, healing in this passage. And we tend to conclude that he's talking about physical illness here. Now, while that is correct, I meant, like I mentioned earlier, James' primary concern in this whole letter is the worldliness that is plaguing these Christians. And in the light of that, we need to understand that, yes, he is talking about physical illness here, but the primary focus is the spiritual weakness of these believers. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that he's not talking about physical illness. I think there is aspects of physical illness that he's talking about here, as we will see later. But what I'm saying, the sickness is primarily a result of, or is primarily a, a spiritual weakness and a result of um, spiritual weakness and sin in their midst. And I think as we work our way through this passage, this becomes more evident to us as we flow through this passage. So what is this sick person supposed to do? He is to call the elders of the church to come and pray over him. In fact, in Acts 6 verse 4, one of the roles of the elders is the ministry of prayer. The reason why, uh, or one of, the, one of the roles that the elder has to fulfill is to be men of prayer and men of the word. And so elders as men who are qualified are really, in a, who is an elder? An elder is someone who is qualified, who is an example for Christianity within the church. So people look to an elder and say, this is how a Christian ought to live, because the qualification for elders really defines what a Christian is. So as elders, as elders who lead by example, 
Um, it's no surprise that James is asking that they come and pray for someone who is weak, spiritually weak and physically weak. Because as examples of men of faith, they are the best people to come and to pray. So how are they to pray over the sick person? They are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now the use of, the, uh, of oil in, in Scripture is primarily uh, in reference to consecration of king, priests, and uh, even the tabernacle. But the anointing or the use of oil is not just limited to that in Scripture. We see oil is also used for many other purposes, among which one of them is medicinal. For example, in Luke chapter 10, verse 34, we see the Good Samaritan use medicinal oil or in treating the wounded man. In fact, oil is one of the most basic forms of medicine that was available to um, the common man to be able to use when he was ill or unwell. And so James is asking the elders to not just pray, but to practically care for this person by applying uh, something that was medicinal. Now, we live in a day and age where the physical illness can be treated with modern forms of medication far more effective than oils. And so while the prayer still remains the focus on the application, um, the aspect of using oil is actually really a reference to uh, showing uh, practical care for those who are suffering. And so the elders lead by example, not just by praying, but also by showing practical care for the suffering person. And so what happens when the elders pray for the sick in this way and apply this medication and pray in faith? He says in verse 15, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now some people look at this verse and wrongly teach that if someone just has sufficient amount of faith, then healing is guaranteed. But the reality is this is not what the Bible teaches. You see, this is because prayer of faith is not dependent on how much faith we can muster from within. You see, the prayer of faith is not dependent on how good we are. Because if the prayer of faith was something that we could muster from within, then we would be bending God's will to us as though he is obliged to submit to our prayer and heal the sick person. It would be absurd to think that man can control the will of a sovereign God. Now, don't get me wrong, it is absolutely correct to ask God according to his will. But if we are to pray in faith, then it should be from a heart that is filled with thanksgiving. It should be with a heart that is filled with uh, gratitude, a heart that is filled with confidence, a heart that is expectant, looking to God and expectantly praying that uh, he would answer our prayers in his will. You see, Sinclair Ferguson, an article about praying in faith says, to ask God to accomplish what he says, this is what prayer of faith is. He says, to ask God to accomplish what he has promised in his word. That is the prayer of faith. And that promise is the only grounds for our confidence in asking. Such confidence is not worked up from within our emotional life. Rather, it is given and supported by what God has said in Scripture. So the prayer of faith really is us relying on who God says he is and trusting in him and therefore having confidence and therefore having boldness and therefore having expectation as we pray to the Lord, ultimately relying that he is sovereign over all and in his will, he will make all things come to pass. 
Now, I just want to flip this uh, the other way and explain what prayer of faith also is not. The prayer of faith that is prayed is not a prayer of faith if it is void of confidence in the Lord. It is not a prayer of faith if it is not uh, prayed with the expectation of God's providence. You see, as little children coming to the Father for their needs, we are to come to God's presence with our request, and not just by just saying a prayer and, tacking, uh, and, and at the end of it tacking on a phrase like, if in God's will, and just leave it. No, we are to come with confidence in God's goodness. We are to come in reverence, in humility, in dependence on Him. Because sometimes we can completely forget that as conservative Christians and fall into this trap of faithless prayer. Sometimes we can pray in a way and ask God for things that makes Him sound as though He is not capable of doing what He has promised. And it is this kind of person that James is talking about in chapter 1 verse 6 when he says, this kind of person who prays these weak cop-out prayers is a double-minded man who receives nothing. It's as though we're praying as a token to God and just saying something for the sake of saying it. You see, how do we develop this kind of prayer? How do we develop this kind of faith and this prayer of faith? It only comes as we grow in our intimacy with the Lord. It only comes as we know Him more, as we delight in Him more. And how do we do that? It only comes as we are feeding from His Word. The only way we can get to know God is through His Word. And the more we spend time with His Word, the more our thinking is changed. The more our thinking is changed, the more it causes us to delight in Him and to worship Him and to be uh, growing in our intimacy with Him. And the more we do that, the more we have confidence in who He is as our relationship with Him grows deeper and deeper and deeper. And so what's the end result? James says here that the prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. Moving on, James gives us one of the reasons why this person is spiritually weary. He says in verse 15, If he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. Now the word uh, committed here is not just a reference to some random sin, but it, is, it carries the notion of a pattern of sin, or someone who has been living a life of sin. Essentially what James is saying is that some of them are gravely ill because of habitual sin. And James is linking the fact that committing sin is connected to being sick. So there's a physical illness, or even spiritual illness as well, but uh, some of them are actually suffering that because there is sin that needs to be forgiven. In 1 Corinthians um, 11, verse 29 to 30, Paul says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. In Revelation 3, 19, Jesus says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous and repent. Meaning that the physical sickness and pain, not all the time, can sometimes be because of our own sin. Sure, there, because of our sin, we can make choices that will ultimately affect us physically, but even God can use uh, the means to, uh, of sickness to actually teach us a lesson that would cause us to repent and turn back to Him. See, sometimes God allows suffering and pain in our lives as a means of disciplining in the same way that a, a father disciplines his children so that they would uh, be obedient to him. And so when we go through this time of suffering, we need to really think about 
and examine ourselves and see what is God really teaching us? That should be the question we should be asking. What is God really trying to tell me in this time of suffering, in this time of difficulty? What are the areas in my life that I need to work on? And why is this important? Why is this important that we examine ourselves when we go through suffering and to confess our sins and to be forgiven? It's because if you don't do that, Again, this is a means of God's grace. God is not being harsh towards us. He's being gracious towards us in allowing us to suffer so that it could be a means of a red warning light to say, hang on, what are you doing? Sort out your life. And if we ignore that and we continue down this path, then this is a path of distraction. You see, trials and suffering is meant for us to be steadfast in the Lord. When we sin, it's a means of drawing us back to Him. What happens when we draw back to Him? We grow. We become steadfast. We, become st- we stand fast in the Lord. And as we do that, we become mature and we become complete ultimately to be with Him in heaven. Moving on from elders, James is giving the second application of what this praying looks like within the body. So in the first application of praying within the body, he's saying, okay, if someone is sick, call the elders. Let them come and pray over him, anointing him with oil. And then the prayer of faith, or the elders as they pray, as men who are men of faith, or who live like Christians, will uh, be healed and they will be raised up and their sins forgiven. And the second application that he talks about is in verse 16. He says, going off what he has said already, therefore, meaning connecting to everything that he has said previously, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So in, in saying therefore, like I said earlier, it connects the previous thought to what he's t- talking about right now. Meaning that it's not just suddenly the, uh, the sick person that has to confess to the elder and the elder that has to pray for the sick person. No, this is something that everyone within the body now has to start doing. It is an exceptional case that a sick person has to call an elder to come, perhaps because of the gravity of their sin and the discipline that the Lord has given him. But in order to stop us from going down that path, here's how we have to live. We have to do this together within the body. You see, from the previous chapters, we see that the people committed sin against each other and it's evident because there was um, you know, lovelessness, there was worldliness, there was duplicity in, in, them, in their individual lives. But also within, within the context of relationships of the, within the church, within, with one another, there was partiality, there was gossip, there was slander, there were quarrels, there was oppression, there was even murder and the list keeps going on. And so just like the one anothering that uh, Scripture calls us to do in other places of Scripture, it is the duty of every Christian to confess our sins to one another. Now it may be that we may confess our sins because we've sinned against someone, but also I think it includes the application of confessing our sins because we've sinned against the Lord and we need each other. And James is saying this, James is saying that you have to confess your sins to one another because if we don't confess our sins to one another, then inadvertently we will allow sin to get to a point that it spiritually weakens us and even may cause the Lord to chastise us. And like I said earlier, on the other hand, if we can allow the Lord 
uh, we, we ignore the Lord's chastisement and we go down this path, it is the path of destruction. It's the path of ruin. And so stop us from getting so badly to this point is why we have to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. George Brooks, in commenting on praying for one another, says, when the church members remember one another in prayer, they cease to be selfish. They cease to pray prayers like me, my, and mine. And when each person prays for others, everyone is prayed for. Remembering one another in prayer helps church members to love one another. We will not sincerely pray for people we do not love. You see, there isn't a better way for us to serve one another, especially considering we've got lockdown and things like that, than to pray and to intercede for one another. Because as opposed to wisdom of my own, I am going to God and seeking Him, seeking His face in humility, in confidence, in assurance that He will work in the lives of others. There is no better way to, pray, to, to help someone than to bring them before the throne of God. And so in verse 16, James says that the result of this form of genuine confession and prayer is that there is healing, meaning there will be a restoration back to God. This form of accountability through confessing and praying together as a church ensures that if we stray away from God, we can be restored and healed. You see, one of the most common problems facing the evangelical and reformed churches in these days is the lack of genuine relationships. Lack of genuine relationships, sure, there's love and there's care, but lack of genuine relationships that include confession and genuine love through prayer. Many Christians these days are comfortable hiding behind theology and doctrine, and some Christians even hide behind the guise of serving in the church and just flying under the radar of accountability and to be seen as though they're doing okay just because they're serving on a Sunday morning. You see, these are the Christians that don't mind having superficial relationships and never really share what's happening in their lives, nor do they make the effort to get to know what's happening in the lives of others in order to encourage and mutually help each other grow in the Lord. These are Christians who are willing to have superficial conversations and are not willing to be vulnerable or to confess or about how they're really doing in the Lord. Because what they fear at the end of the day is really exposing their lives to a fellow believer because they're afraid that um, others will think less of them. You see, if you're listening to me this morning, and especially if you are a member of GCBC, can I ask you, who do you have in your life, apart from your spouses or immediate family, that truly know how you are doing? I'm not talking about attending on a Sunday morning service. I'm not talking about taking part in whatever ministry that you may be a part of. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about how involved you are in church. I'm talking about genuine, honest relationships where you are vulnerable enough to share your deepest challenges and struggles and you are encouraged by those uh, in your life that are praying for you and you therefore are being an encouragement for others as well as they share their lives with you. How many of us are praying for one another regularly? You see, we have a prayer calendar that, calendar that is sent out every month. How many of us take time to pray to the names of the people in that calendar? You see, this way of praying is not an option for Christian. 
This is not an option. This is the way we are called to live. This is basic Christianity 101. We are to pray for one another. It is a requirement. And it is the evidence that points to the fact that we are living like Christians. Moving on, in, uh, James also encourages them in verse 16 when he says, The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. He explains how does this prayer actually work when we pray for one another, the efficacy of prayer. Oftentimes in the culture that I'm uh, from where uh, you know, people who are, who are older are considered, you know, are given more respect. Um, and sometimes this verse has been misused to say that if certain spiritually mature people or Christians pray, then the prayer is, you know, God will answer that prayer more than other Christians. Now, I don't think that's what this verse is saying. I think in order to understand the efficacy of our prayer, we need to understand who is this righteous man. You see, simply speaking, a righteous man is righteous because the righteousness of Christ has been placed upon him. And so it is not his own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. But in relative terms, a righteous man is also someone who is striving to live in a way that honors God, or basically a righteous man who is striving to live like a Christian. And so James here is saying is that, that the righteous man's prayer has great power as it is working, meaning the righteous man's prayer brings results. A person who is walking in the ways of the Lord, a person who is living like a Christian, applying godly wisdom and persevering through trials is really a righteous man. And as he prays, it brings results. He's, and, and, and we see the opposite of this in James 4, verse 2 to 3. In James 4, 2 to 3, he says, in dealing with worldly, he says, you, do not, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. You see, the, the kind of prayer that has no power, no, no efficacy, there's no... Uh, the result out of that is really a prayer that is so focused on self, focused on the world, that is focused on desiring our, ourselves to be pleased and, and selfish. Whereas the prayer of faith, the prayer that has power, is the prayer that is focused on God, applying godly wisdom, all for the glory of God. This is the kind of prayer that absolutely has confidence in who God is, has confidence and has expectation, uh, is expectantly in humility praying to God. This is the kind of prayer that relies on the absolute sovereignty of God in restoring fellow believers back to God. And James says this prayer accomplishes much. It has great power as it is working. And he uses an example, and you'll notice that even in, in previous sections that James uses examples from the Old Testament, particularly the prophets and men of faith, to, uh, to uh, help them to understand the seriousness of what he's saying. He says, uh, Elijah, he uses the example of Elijah. He says in verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, meaning that he had the circumstances that are similar to theirs in terms of suffering and persecution. And he says, he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. We see this uh, aspect of Elijah praying in 1 Kings 18 to, and verse 42, where he bows his face between his knees in a posture of prayer. And so James is using Elijah's, uh, Elijah as an example, a man of faith who, who trusted in the Lord, who relied on God, who despite all of the circumstances that he was in, if you think about it, he was one of the only few people left in Israel that did not bow down to Baal, the idol. 
and a man who faced much suffering, who stood against everybody else, the majority, to the point that he thought he was the only person who really um, obeyed God in, in the nation of Israel. He had similar circumstances, yet he was faithful, a man of faith who did not move through his suffering, relying on God's wisdom and, 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 and depending on him. And when he prayed, it did not rain, and when he prayed again, it rained again. And so by using the example of Elijah, James is encouraging them to pray in the same way because when they pray fervently in faith, it is effective. Now before I finish up this section, I just want to remind you again, when we do pray to the Lord, sometimes uh, we will not get the answers that we're looking for on the timeline that we're looking for. That is because God is still sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over everything in our lives. And ultimately, even as we pray and we don't get, and we have to pray continuously and, and, and not stop, but to keep praying for things because it shows our dependence, but it shows who God, is, who God is as he's sovereign over all. And even then, when he does not answer the way that we, want to, we would like the answer for, we can still trust in him because ultimately, even as we depend on him, that brings him glory. And that is our end purpose. Moving on to our last point, um, and I've titled it The Effect of Prayer and Accountability Against Worldliness in verse 19. He wraps up this letter in verse 19, and we come to the third point. And he says, uh, verse 19 and 20, sorry. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now the word wander here uh, means having missed the mark, meaning that James is saying that you know, whoever wanders away, whoever misses the mark of what it means to be a Christian when he faces trials, needs to be brought back. You see, this is the kind of wandering that, a Christian, uh, that causes a Christian to turn away from God, and it happens very slowly, to slowly apply the wisdom of the world away from the wisdom of God, and before you know it, he's living like the world, embracing the thinking of the world, and acting like the world. Meaning that if, and so what he's saying is that if anyone misses the mark of Christian living, we have to bring him back. It is important to bring him back. You see, the reason why uh, James is giving us his uh, urgent um, encouragement here is because we need to be, uh, we need to understand that if a Christian continues down this path where he's wandering away from God, it is the path of distraction. He says in verse 20, he, he will, he's wandering, if you bring him back, you will save his soul from death, meaning that if he continues down this path, that's the death of his soul. You see, this form of accountability is urgent and it is required. It is not an option. It is something that we need to do as a church together because that's how we show that we love each other. We show that we love each other in the way that we hold accountable because we love each other to not let each other go down this path of distraction. You see, the need for accountability is now. James is reminding us that as individuals, we need to go back to God for wisdom. And as a church, we need to be pointing each other back to God through our accountability or confessing our sins and by praying together. Because if we don't do that, the person misses uh, the mark of what true Christianity looks like and will slip through the gaps and will inevitably go down the path of destruction. 
And even in my lifetime here at GCPC, I've seen that happen, where someone continues down this path and they slipped right through the cracks where no one's been able to care for them, no one's loved them enough to tell them that they need to stop going down this way and ultimately they're now in a path of ruin and destruction. But that is not how we ought to live. Even as we come to the close of this sermon and the close of this letter of James, I just want to quickly summarize what James has been talking about just in this letter as a whole. James is addressing these Christians uh, because of the duplicity of their faith. He says that the faith that they claim to have is not matched by the works that they are doing or the way that they're living. They seem to affirm one thing and they seem to be living another way. Why is that? Because they've forgotten that Uh, God gives suffering, God gives trials, God gives every temptation as an opportunity for us to uh, persevere in him and to grow and mature. And if we need to do that, we need to be going to him for wisdom. But what have these Christians been doing instead of going to him for wisdom and dealing with their trials? They've been borrowing wisdom from the world. And as a result of borrowing wisdom from the world, they became influenced by the world. They started thinking like the world. They started living like the world. They started talking and acting like the world. And so James finally arrives at chapter 5 that, and says the only way to deal with this is to apply wisdom in the form of waiting patiently, in the form of being steadfast, in the form of praying. And as we looked at today, in the form of praying individually when we suffer, in the form of praising God when we see his goodness in our, in our lives. But corporately as a church, within the body, to be praying for one another, to be holding each other accountable. Why is that? Because we love each other, and as as disciples, we are called to love each other. And when we do this, we will restore each other back to our right, and we will help each other uh, to have that right relationship with God. Because if we don't do that, and we don't love each other enough to uh, be accountable, and to be responsible and committed and praying for one another, then we will allow those that are wandering to slip through the cracks. And if they continue down this path, then that is the path of destruction. So what does it mean for us? What does this mean for us today, this morning? You see, if you're not a Christian, then it is you that James is talking about in the last verse regarding the death of your soul. Because without Jesus Christ, the only way that you know and the only way that you live is the way of the world. And the way of the world ultimately is destruction and ruin and chaos. You see, even though you're in this current condition, there is still hope. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was God. He came down in the form of a man. He lived a perfect life that you or I would ever even dream of living. And not only did he live a perfect life, uh, he died on that cross. He died on that cross, and when he died, the perfect righteousness that he lived was placed on us. And our sinful life that we live uh, was given to him and he paid for that sin. And not only that, he died, he buried and rose again. And because of which, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, now because of the righteousness of Christ that we have, the way that we lived, and because of the spirit that he has given to us, it enables us, he's given us a new heart that desires things for him, that wants to live and to obey and to honor him. And so we live in this way with the hope that one day we will be with him. If we die, just because Jesus, in the same way Jesus was raised up, that one day we will be raised up. 
And because Jesus is now in heaven, well, one day we will be with him in heaven. And so that is the assurance that we have. Now, as an unbeliever, as, you don't, as someone who does not know God, your end is destruction, but there is hope. There is hope in knowing this Jesus. There is hope in having an eternity to spend with him. And we'd love to talk to you more about this Jesus, and we'd love for you to uh, email us at connect at gracebiblechurch.org.au so that we can actually talk to you more about this Jesus and, and give you and talk to you about the hope that you can have in him. Now, if you are a Christian, especially if you are a member of Grace Community Bible Church, then you're probably aware that one of the areas that we need to grow together as a church is in the area of prayer. You see, it starts with us individually. As an individual, can I encourage you to start with your own personal life, to pray to God for wisdom and for guidance in navigating this life, and to pray earnestly, pray desiring and expectantly and confidently uh, with, with a desire to want to honor him. And as you do that, and as the Lord starts working in your heart, you know, think about how you can be an encouragement to others. Think about how you can be a means of encouragement within the body that God has placed you in. How you can pray for one another, pray for others' needs. Go through the prayer calendar and pray for people. And as you're praying them, perhaps call them and ask them how you can pray for them, how they're doing spiritually in the Lord, and be an encouragement for them and their needs within the body. You see, and the, the reality is when we all start doing this, you see, we will start to see God working in our midst, and we will start to see God continue to transform lives and to change lives. And those that are struggling will be encouraged as they see others doing this. And it will be reason for them to then come back to God and to be encouraged and to draw near to God. And it will be a great source of encouragement for everyone. And what is the end result? When this is happening and we as a church are doing this together, the gospel becomes clear. What Christ has done becomes clear because we are living now in a way that represents what Christ has done and what Christ has called us to. We are showing the love of Christ to one another in this way. And as we grow and as we mature, we be more useful for him. And as Christ is made known, we will be able to be a witness to the world around us for, what, uh, for the gospel. Can I encourage you to go beyond superficial relationships and small talks to get to really the core of how you're doing and to build relationships intentionally? If you're someone who has never, who's never uh, you know, shared your life with anyone, if, you, if you're someone who is saying, actually, I don't think uh, there's anyone who, in my life at the moment or I don't think I'm in the life of anyone at this moment, can I encourage you to pray about it and ask God to show you uh, what uh, his will is in this area. Ask him to give you uh, boldness. Ask him to give you humility so that you would go beyond the feeling of, I don't want anyone to know how I'm really doing, to how can I actually do life together as we be accountable, responsible, and committed to other members of the body. And for those of you, even after this, that are still holding out whose hearts are hearts are hardened that don't want to live this way. This is not the form of Christianity of the Bible. See, living a life without prayer individually, living lives that are not accountable for one another, living lives in a way that is not uh, encouraging one another within the body, 
is not the Christianity of the Bible. It is very dangerous to do it on your own. And without accountability, you can easily be deceived. Which is why in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, uh, he talks about um, people who are in hell. And he says, and, and, and over there it's described as hell containing people who thought they were living the right Christian life only to be self-deceived and to find out that Jesus says, I do not know you. So let's pray together. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you once again for this uh, morning. We thank you, Lord, for your reminder of how we ought to pray, Lord, in the circumstance. Lord, we confess, Lord, even through this lockdown, Lord, we've been struggling, Lord. And we pray, Lord, through this time of struggling, that we will pray for wisdom. That the wisdom from above that reminds us that we are to endure, we are to be patient, we are to be steadfast as we are reminded of the coming of the Lord and the great glory that awaits us as we spend eternity with you. That we will be encouraged to know that, uh, that even through this year, you're sovereign and that you're ruler over all. And that as we are encouraged, Lord, and as we pray to you for encouragement, Lord, as we remain steadfast, as we grow, as we mature, as you continue to reveal yourself to us, that we would be an encouragement to those around us that we would be praying for others, Lord, that we would be joyful and praising you, and as a result, that would cause us to encourage others in the word, encourage others through prayer. Lord, that would cause us to, uh, wor- to build account- like relationships that are open, transparent, accountable, responsible, and committed to one another, Lord. And then that when we, when we do that, Lord, we, we, we want to be a church that ultimately uh, that the world will look at us and say, these are disciples of Jesus Christ because they love one another and because the love of Christ is evident in the way they live. And that would be a cause for, cause for great witness and testimony to you, Lord. And so we pray that you would help us to do that, Lord. But for those among us that are struggling with this aspect of uh, opening up their lives to others that are afraid of... Um, uh, of shame and guilt and afraid of being vulnerable. We pray that you would, uh, uh, you would work in their hearts, Lord, to help them to uh, see the, the benefit that it is n- not just them, that all of us struggle with sin in one form or another. And all of us uh, are in different uh, stages in our relationship with you, Lord. And then that all of us struggle one way or the other and that none of us are perfect. And Lord, that they would be af- not be afraid to share and to, so that we can truly love and we can truly care and that we can truly point each other back to Christ, Lord. We pray for those that are still struggling that, uh, that to do that, Lord. And even as they go down this path of uh, not uh, really living life together within the body, we pray that, that through your providence, that even if you choose to discipline them, Lord, that even through those means that they would be drawn back to you even as you use forms of suffering, Lord, that it would be a reminder for them to be able to uh, examine themselves and draw back to you, Lord. We, we pray and we plead with you, Lord, that none of us, Lord, uh, would be uh, lost so far that we would be going down the path of destruction, Lord, and showing evidence that we were never saved. So we pray that you would work in our midst, and we pray that you'd help us to do that, Lord. Or we pray, Lord, that... Uh, that Again, that we would rely on you, and for these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.